What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. All right. I looked at the mortgage rate, you know, uh, on the Bloomberg terminal. You can do that. It's over 7% now, the average 30-year mortgage. What? So I feel Wait, like- Wait, did the, you close on your place? I'm closing later today. And I feel like I'm, I'm gaming the market with the rate I got. Which you locked was, in a good rate. Yeah, well, no. You locked in a good rate. I locked in a egregious rate, but it looks better than it does today. Uh, but let's talk about the mortgage market. Let's talk about the housing market. Erica Edelberg, uh, she joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Erica is the mortgage-backed security strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Erica, talk to us about just kind of the housing market, just the basic housing market today. Um, rates higher. It seems like there's a real supply problem out there. What are you seeing? But we have had big jumps in new home, new home sales, pending home sales, way bigger than we were looking for. Yeah. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming um, in. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, the housing market is on a roller coaster. It's just you know, everybody, I think, who's interested in buying houses is taking a close look at rates. They think there is a lot of – it feels like there's a lot of pent-up demand whenever rates fall a little bit. Um, and new home builders have a lot of inventory. They're probably looking to move because they have more houses under construction. So there's you know a lot of incentives going around to try to encourage people to still be involved in the mortgage market, which I think is why you – I'm sorry, in the housing market, which is why I think you saw the big jump in both existing home sales and new home sales – pending home sales – and new home sales, you know, as soon as rates dropped a little bit, existing home sales are still very low, but pending home sales are a leading indicator for that. So wait, let's separate all those three things for people who don't <laughs> work you. in yes. the housing uh, industry like you do. So pending home sales is what, contracts signed? Pending home sales is, I, I think, I, I, know, I know new home sales are contract signed. Pending home sales, I'm not sure because it's a leading indicator for existing home sales. So, yeah, it's before closing. So, yeah, pending home sales are contract signed. Um, new home sales New are home sales are just built and sold, right? Not like if Paul lived in his house for 20 years and then sells it, that's existing home sales. Right. But new home sales haven't necessarily even closed. So there are a lot of cancellations on new home sales. Because the people but that's for sold. first time move in, right? New home sales is like yeah. new, brand yep. new yep. home sales, yeah. And existing home sales is on when the loans actually close, the houses actually turn. So, so existing home sales is usually related to rates a couple months ago. Both new home sales and especially pending home sales are based more on you know where rates are today and what type of incentives people are getting. And uh, especially for new home sales, they may not even close. There's a lot of cancellations. So that's right. really The whole thing is kind of confusing even for an analyst. But the bottom line is we've seen the numbers tick up yeah. um, from the doldrums. And uh, have, does that mean we've seen a bottom in housing? You know, so there's one more number we can throw in there just to confuse people. The Mortgage Banker Association does a weekly survey, and they look at purchase loan applications and refi loan applications, which are, of course, in the basement. 
um, purchase loan applications did tick up a little in January, which is why so many people thought that's the biggest leading indicator. That's like two months out, basically. Um, that's that's uh, you know that's where you know people were trying to lock in mortgages when the rates were a little bit lower. That's now back to 28-year lows. It's fallen two weeks in a row. So I, I think you know b- bottom line is I think that's MBAV perch if you want to bring that up. But I think bottom line is that um, you know whatever green shoots we're seeing are obviously being impeded now by the higher mortgage rates. On the bright side, we're moving to the spring housing season where a lot of people get involved in the markets. Right. On the ne- okay, so this sign, is not a, even the season anyway. It's just starting. So, yeah, we can't really judge it by these numbers. I want to ask about something that I think Paul's going to be doing next year. And I think maybe a lot more people are than have been in the past decade at least, maybe longer, People are getting adjustable rate mortgages because we're so high, right? Bank rate says 7.12% right now. Um, are more people going to be – you said refis are in the basement. Obviously, nobody's refinancing at 7%. That's why City is letting go hundreds of people in yep. their mortgage unit. But next year, people may be doing just that. Are a lot of people picking up adjustable rate mortgages hoping that rates go down in the future? Adjustable rate mortgages have picked up a little bit. You know, keep in mind when you think about an adjustable rate mortgage, it's not the adjustable rate mortgage of yesteryear where you might even get a teaser rate or at least you can reset, you know, resets annually at, so you get a low rate. Right now, they're more like five ones, ten ones. So the rate's only incrementally lower than 30-year. You can look at the bank rate. I, th- I think it's, you know, maybe 100 basis points savings. Right. So some people are taking those out. They don't have to reset for five years, and there's pretty serious caps on the first reset. So it's not really a risk for the mortgage market. But, yeah, we are seeing a little bit of pickup, and it, it's almost 100% correlated right now with the spread between 30-year yep. and, and five ones. So that, that's, that's the math people are doing. All right, Eric, let's talk about the mortgage-backed securities market, fixed income market in general. Good January, bad February. Talk to us about the MBS market. Where are you seeing opportunities, risk? What are you telling your clients? Yeah, it was very interesting. We, we came out of a really rotten, the worst ever yes. year in 2022. You know, we came out of the gates strong. We had the best January that I've seen, at least, you know, in history. I mean, going back as far as any of our series go, both on, you know, a hedge return basis as well as a, a bonds are back, you know, total return basis. And it's just been, you know, drip by drip pain since then. And what turned the market is the fact that I think every, the markets have been pricing in after you know a nice turn in CPI, what appeared to be a turn in CPI. They've been pricing in the end of Fed tightening um, and maybe even easing by the end of the year. That's all gone out the window. As soon as last month's non-farm payrolls number came in, way stronger than anyone expected. And other data has also you know, made us think, including ISM's numbers today, that you know we're not out of the woods yet. The Fed's probably going to have to go a lot higher and keep rates a lot higher for a lot longer than people expected. And mortgages don't love that scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, bonds in general don't love that scenario. But it also means there's probably ongoing you know volatility while we're trying to figure out what's actually going to happen. So as I say, mortgages have given up all of their total rate of return year to date and a lot of their excess return year to date as well. Thirty seconds. Uh, credit quality in the, in the MBS market, mortgage market. Um, credit quality is still very strong. Delinquencies okay. are still very low. Uh, most people still have those 2% mortgages or 3% mortgages, so look strong. All right. My man over here has got a very low mortgage, don't you? On Three your, and a quarter on the, percent. On the estate in Westchester. Yeah. yeah. Um, nice. It's pretty fantastic. Yeah, I'm paying. I'm glad I locked that in. Yeah. But it doesn't change the fact that my taxes are so high. <laughs> right. 
I could honestly be buying like a new 911 every year. It's yep. just insane. Right. Well, you get the scat pack thing coming. You'll be all. You'll be happy. Erica Edelberg, uh, mortgage-backed security strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us here live in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio on a Friday. So that's a double star. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. I love exchange traded funds. Uh, I think, what are they, 30 years old now, and they just continue to innovate. The industry continues to grow. We're talking about at least, at least $9 trillion of funds globally. Incredible incredible growth story. Sylvia Jablonski joins us here, Chief Investment Officer and Co-Founder of Defiance ETFs. And, you know, Sylvia, on the Bloomberg Terminal, there's this great stories every day on the ETF space. One that got my attention just recently, Jim Cramer ETFs arrives to bet on and against the CNBC host picks. Talk to us, Sylvia, just about these specialized, super specialized kind of ETFs, like a pro or con Jim Cramer ETF. Is that... Is that where the growth is, as opposed to just like buying an index ETF? <laughs> good, good morning. You know, it's it's a great question. I think it's certainly where the popularity is and where the interest is. Um, you know, my sense of it is that you kind of have the ETFs out there already that you know track and and represent the classic sectors that investors want access to. So, for example, there there are you know many many options to get S&P 500 exposure in an ETF wrapper, NASDAQ, um, emerging markets, you know, fixed it, basic fixed income products and things like that. So the second wave of products was really in the thematic space. And you started to see right. these cool broader themes, you know, like um, whether it's space or, or EVs and things like that. And now you have, as you said, this, this Jim Cramer long short. I think providers are just coming, trying to come out with something new that will um, you know, gather assets and will represent something that people actually want to trade. And, you know, people do follow Jim Cramer and have strong opinions either way on, on his stock. What's a, what's a successful ETF in terms of size? Like what's, a, what's considered yeah. to be a successful ETF? What launch? kind of flows do you need to see? Yeah. Right. Well, it's, you know, it depends on the management fee. So if obviously the higher the fee, the lower the thresholds that you need for success. So if you have an ETF that has 
you know, 90 bips to, to 1% and, and you gather 20 million, you know, that's sort of a decent baseline. But if you have an ETF that's priced at, you know, 10, 20, 30 bips, you need to see hundreds and millions of assets to actually, you know, really generate a profit on that product because ETFs are actually pretty costly to run on the back end. We see more and more of these uh, ETFs, like the Kramer one. Um, I think before that, we got Cruz and Nance tracking what, uh, not Nancy Pelosi and Ted Cruz specifically yeah. do, but what the Republicans do or what the right. Democrats do in, far, in, in, in terms of you know, front-running their legislation to make money. Are, are these just a fad? I think time will tell, you know, if, if they perform, for, for example, there was a period of time last year where, um, you know, you saw that short arc ETF, right, where everybody became super sour on, on Kathy Wood the year prior, you know, she was sort of the, the, the hero of ETFs and her ETF took off and then last year was terrible. And now this year her ETF is up 20% again. So um, the flows are kind of leaving the short arc and going into the long one. So I think it's it'll be this, the same thing with a long short Kramer fund. You know, if the performance is there, I think it'll generate assets and there's enough kind of retail investors that are interested in, in you know, the media of it and the publicity of it. But I, you know, do I think it's going to end up in an asset manager's ETF allocation? You know, probably not that ETF. I think a lot of thematic ETFs have a shot to mm. uh, because, you know, there is this interest in disruptive technology and innovation, things like that. But Something like that almost feels a little bit meme and and will probably you know gather some assets in the moment and then unless performance is phenomenal it'll probably fade away. Uh, unless the um, congressional stock traders are forced to disclose <laughs> what they do, you know, within like ten years of their buy or sell. Right. By the way, speaking of Cruz, you have an ETF that I think Paul would like. Um, he's obsessed with hotels, planes, cruise ships, and you've got CRUZ. Yeah, I, I mean, so we've we've we launched that ETF to really tackle the the idea that you know post pandemic there would be this pent up demand for people to travel and you know there's a very popular airline ETF out there but there wasn't something that sort of captured the full picture with hotels and and cruises and whatnot so um, cruise gives you just that it gives you access to the airlines so you're getting domestic but you're also getting that China reopened trade that East meets West you know um, tailwind that we're going to see this year. You get cruises, and, and we've seen the data there. A lot of the CEOs are coming out and saying that pandemic pre-book, you know, pre-bookings are back to pre-pandemic levels. They're starting to generate revenues again. They have pricing power, and of course, hotels business travels back up. People are out there traveling. So I think in the short term, um, particularly if we don't see any kind of hard landing and we start to see some of this, in, you know, inflationary pressure cool off, um, you might get some tailwinds in in, in cruise and and some of these types of names within that ETF in the next year or two let's and call it's it your highest i mean uh it's your highest year-to-date return that etf is up like 20 percent year to date um yeah in terms of uh the the largest fund assets you operate um the 5g right defiance next gen connectivity etf it's also um lowest fees of the of the etfs that you operate i guess because it's so big right and the highest yield yeah, so so the interesting thing about that is when we launched that ETF, we were a new fund and and a new company, and we wanted to come to market. And we thought that you know we really need to make a splash. So let's let's try to come up with the most innovative product that we can. And we thought to ourselves, there's no you know great innovative product in terms of the future of communication. And what is the future of communication? It's really 5G. So we structured the product, and then we thought to ourselves, and and this is also around you know kind of 
it's pre-COVID, but it, it kind of dove into COVID around the time that we launched. Um, and we thought to ourselves, you know, who's going to trade this? It's going to be kind of that younger Robinhood trader and whatnot. And so let's make it transparent. Let's make it as cost effective as possible and try to gather assets and really start a company. And, and so it's, re it's really our flagship fund and it, it's what got us on the map. Um, and, you know, we're super proud of that ETF today. And we hope to see it. We hope to see it start to grow again as um, risk appetite picks up in coming years. Hey, Sylvia, uh, talk to us about the trend of mutual funds converting to ETFs. I find that fascinating. Kind of where are we in that process and how do you think it plays out going forward? So it's interesting because I, I think, you know, I'm young enough where I've invested in ETFs for a really long time and I've worked with people who were really like mutual fund believers, hardcore mutual fund believers and thought that the ETF would, would go away. I, I mean, it's just really hard to argue that mutual fund assets will remain where they are. ETFs are just a much better wrapper. You know, they're far more efficient. You got intraday trading, you can buy and sell them throughout the day. You know what the intraday nav is, what the fund is actually worth versus what you're paying for it. Um, you know, there are a lot of tax benefits to using the ETF structure. So we've seen that transition. We've seen the outflow of of from mutual funds into ETFs. And not to say that, you know, you have some great actively managed mutual funds out there that are never going to go away. But I think that the ETF wrapper is is now, you know, kind of the preferred product of choice by uh, by investors and especially the next generation of investors. I mean, if you ask um, like a 17 year old about a mutual fund, they might not even know what it is. <laughs> what about um, regulation? I mean, one thing about mutual funds I know is that and my 401k is like puking mutual funds. Can you put ETFs yeah. easily in a 401k? Are, are investors limited? Because that's a big, it's a big pool there. Yeah, that's the limit. That's the limit. And that's where the assets are sticky for mutual funds. So I think that um, there have been talks about this sort of, you know, forever, at least for the last decade that that I've been in ETFs that, you know, all the retirement plans are going to open up to ETFs. And some of them have and some of them haven't. The majority have not. You know, I suspect that there's going to become a time just because there's so much um, user demand for it where you'll see that open up to ETF products, at least certain ETF products. Uh, and I think, you know, I, I think in that case, that just even further propels the ETF asset number um, by the trillions and, and shrinks the mutual fund assets. And you see a lot of the, you know, top actively managed mutual funds trying to create ETFs out of their strategies too. So they sort of know that they're not, you know, they're not kind of, um, eroding their own assets, but they sort of realize that they have to switch over to, yeah. to keep their assets. Yeah, it's just amazing. It's one of the just greatest or most, you know, impactful changes I've seen in the last decade. And I know it's been longer than that. This uh, I'm going to start. ETFs. I'm going to start dating people by you're either pre ETF or post. post yeah, yeah, you're definitely because in the post you started ETF. on the street. Yes, before uh, spies were, oh, were built yeah, and yeah. allowed. But, exactly, exactly. But Sylvia, no, after absolutely, Sylvia Jablonski. Chief Investment Officer, co-founder of Defiance ETFs. Uh, and in the, on the Bloomberg terminal, for those of you sitting in front of a terminal, ETF Go is a great function. Uh, gives you all the good information you want about the ETF space. And you, uh, looking at the Defiance ones, uh, 5G is, Matt mentioned, the uh, biggest one. And it's got great returns there. It's got $700 million assets under management. All right, we got Kevin Tynan on here. He's a senior autos analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. No real agenda here, but I want to just start, Kevin. I, I know Michael Dean, your colleague in London, follows Volkswagen, but Volkswagen came out today saying, you know, they're boosting production, demand is still there. Um, 
I want to ask you, for, from the global auto industry, are, is the supply chain issue, is that fixed? Well, it's better. Um, but, uh, you know, we, and we've talked about this a lot. Like, I'm not sure how much of it was chips and supply chain and how much of it was constraining output to maintain pricing and, and margin. So, um, you know, automakers are, are, are going to get back to a little bit more of that growth mode as the demand is there. But, um, you know, I, I think it's an easier hurdle now, right? Like across in, in the key regions, you, you don't have this um, sales for sales sake kind of mindset anymore, right? Like the product portfolio is different, costs are rationalized, and it's, um, you know, it's your most expensive stuff that you're putting out there. So, um, you know, de- demand Not is just car better. makers, by the way, Kevin. You know, last week I was down at the Ducati shop, in Soho, and the uh, North American CEO, Jason Chinnick, told me uh, after their experience during the pandemic, they're pushing towards basically 40, 30, 40, $50,000 models rather than the entry-level $10,000 bike that right. they used to sell. And even same thing at Harley-Davidson, right? If you look at that company, you know, this move away from volume for volume's sake because they got out of a lot of difficult regions for them, you know, um, international markets and um, are really just focused on constraining supply, driving prices higher, um, you know, and just filling orders at the highest possible price and margin. So my question to you is, is that a thing, Kevin? Is that a long-term trend? I, I mean, this is an industry for the, it's a, it seems like my entire lifetime, at least, you know, you produce 17 million cars and, and you, you sell the, you haggle and you do all that kind of stuff. Now you're talking, tell me 15 million and it's, you, the sticker price or above is what you're going to pay? Yeah, well, here's the thing, right? So if you look at it from a volume perspective, you're going to say, where where do two and a half million units go and do they ever come back? But the thing is, at 17 and a half million, you know, from the manufacturer's perspective and even from the dealership's perspective, you know, the average transaction price was $35,000. In 2023, if we do 15 million units, the average transaction price is going to be about $49,000. Oh, Excuse me. So when you look at the revenue pool, this actually this market is actually bigger than when it was peak volume, and that's what I think automakers are focused on. That consumers aren't right. They're just saying, or or the markets or analysts are just saying, seventeen million, seventeen and a half to fifteen is bad. But everybody else or the automakers are going, yeah. But the revenue pool is bigger by about eighty billion dollars, at least here in the U.S. So. I think you have to layer in that one other data point above just simply volume and say, like, okay, well, let's look at where, how much money is this rather than how many units is this? Because, you know, look, a, a 20000 or an $18,000 Chevrolet Cruze, which no longer exists, isn't the same thing as a $60,000 Silverado. What is pushing up the average selling price? Because, uh, you know, I've, I had to fight to get my last call. Dodge Challenger, Scat Pack, Scat Pack, Wide Body, sure. Um, and the price was, let's just say, it. I paid too much for a car that's going to depreciate a lot. Um, but it's the same everywhere. I mean, the new Mustangs are super expensive. Uh, you want to get a Bronco, you're going to pay up. And it seems like, and it makes sense. These car makers are taking advantage of a last call for internal combustion engines to fund their loss-making EV business. Well, yeah, and it's, so it's totally mixed shift. And not only car to truck, but also, like you said, right, look at that mix in that LX platform for 
for Stellantis, Challenger and Charger, right? There's, there's really no more garden variety Challengers or, you know, rental fleet Chargers. I mean, there are, but, but if you were to look at that um, penetration rate of the fire breathers, right, the, the scat packs, the Hellcats, all that stuff, it's probably way higher than you would ever believe it could be yep. uh, because that's what people want, right? They don't want the garden variety, six-cylinder, Nobody whatever. wants the Pentastar. Sure, Everybody sure. So, wants the hell crate. Can, can you define for the me? Hell I've been offense. saying Scat Pack for months now. I have no idea what it is. What okay, is Okay, I'll just quickly tell you. Okay. So <laughs> Hellcat and the Hellcat Red Eye and the Super Stock and the Demon, these are all supercharged 6.2-liter V8s. Okay. So they take um, the inches down a little bit and slap on a power pusher. The Scat Pack is a 6.4 liter V8. So a little bit more in inches, 392, but there's no forced induction. Okay. So it's naturally aspirated. I I give up, though, because I don't believe that you're really paying attention. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Kevin. Kevin, what's the – when you talk to institutional investors today, what's the number one question you get about the auto biz? Uh, You know, that idea that that pricing new and used is set to tumble, you know – and it really comes, you know, there's a lot of inputs into that. Supply versus demand is really what's going to determine it. So I don't think automakers, for the most part, are going to run into an oversupply condition unless, of course, demand goes through the floor, which I don't really see either, right? So I think the, the control or the power still stays in the hands of the automakers, um, you know, while we could see some softening demand just because of interest rates and prices and whatever, you know, I, I, that 15 million unit isn't as high a hurdle in terms of pent-up demand, and I think it's a number we can easily do and do it basically at MSRP and do it very profitably. All right. Everybody wins here but the consumer. <laughs> right. That's the thing. All right. I, 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 to me, that's a bullish call on these auto names across well, the board, Ke- what Kevin just well, called he, Well, here, here's the other thing too, Paul, is that, you know, if, if the process is better for the consumer, everybody paying the same and there being transparency to yep. pricing, arguably they yeah, do true. win also. Okay. All right. All right. We'll see how it plays out until I replace the BMW 2014 with manual transmission. Thank you very much. Kevin Tynan, Senior Automotive Analyst uh, for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's based down in our Princeton, New Jersey office. And the cool thing about him is like Matt Miller, he gets to test drive pretty much every single car that comes out. Uh, so he knows what he's talking about. We love talking to Kevin. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis. 
and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more. So you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Looking at the fixed income landscape, boy, you guys had a really good January. February, not so much. Give us a sense of kind of your thoughts are here in early March about your space. Yeah, hey, good morning. Um, you were absolutely spot on. January was amazing. February, not so much. And, you know, we've almost erased all the gains we had to start the year. Year to date, munis are only up about 30 basis points. You know, the bad news is we're not predicting a lot of positive tailwinds carrying the sector into March. Um, there's not a lot of cash coming back to investors. Primary supply continues to be really light. And, you know, the problem is we're really just attached to where rates are traveling and treasuries have had a rough time. I know today it looks a little better, but last time I checked, inflation isn't dead yet. So until that really gets under control, we're sort of hamstrung. All right. The good news is, well, first of all, I forgot to say, bam. Yes. I almost want to read the billboard again. <laughs> Bam! There you go. Last time we were down at Build America Mutual, uh, we got to talk to Chris Brigatti. He's the managing director, senior VP of Muni Investments over at Valley National Bank. And the good news is we have him here oh, with nice. us today. So, Chris, we can bring table. you in to follow on to what Eric just said. Uh, first of all, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Um, what are your expectations in terms of inflation? It's clearly not uh, died down overnight. What are your expectations in terms of rates? The Fed is clearly rethinking uh, any kind of pause that was was thought to come. Yeah, good morning, Matt. Thanks for having me. And, um, you know, my thoughts are basically inflation is still going to be um, a little bit challenged for the economy and the markets. And I expect net net to, to test those higher yields that we saw back in October which would have put uh, 10 years at a, uh, treasuries at a 432 and 30-year uh, treasuries at a 433. So that, or 442, I'm sorry. Um, so that being said, you know, I, I'm expecting a little bit more pain to be had in the uh, fixed income markets as a result of the mm. inflationary environment. And we got the Fed talking about finally having to uh, do another 50 basis point move possibly in March. That's being uh, put out there and has some credibility behind it. So Not a good look if it has to happen. Paul pointed out, you know, right. once you've stepped down to 25, it doesn't make you look great to have to turn around and go back to 50. Exactly, exactly. So, Chris, I mean, what do you, I mean, again, the inflation data, I guess we can say, you know, with some certainty, inflation has peaked. But is, is the market just telling us, and the Fed, Federal Reserve in particular, is saying, yeah, but it's not coming down as fast as maybe we, we thought maybe towards the end of last year. Is that kind of what you think this Federal Reserve is looking at? 100%. I think it looked like there was a deceleration happening towards the end of uh, last year. And then January data indicated that the, the deceleration was not decelerating at quite the same pace as we might have seen previously. So, you know, higher inflation is the challenge. And the fact that the uh, Fed funds rate is still well below uh, core piece, uh, core CPI is a challenge for the markets that uh, I, I don't think we've, we've got to close that gap before we can see meaningful progress. So, Eric, as you talk to your institutional investor clients, um, kind of what's the conversation centering on today? Is it just the Fed or is there something in the muni space specifically that maybe gets your attention, gets the attention of some of your clients? I think it's a combination of things. So, you know, first off, everyone is sort of vexed by the lack of primary supply in the market. You know, that's obviously a huge challenge because we're so technically driven. But you sort of have 
compounded on top of that is just sort of this uncertainty where credit and credit spreads are going to go for the duration of the year. You know, one of the things we're paying attention to, and, and we had um, Nick Bloom from Stanford University join our podcast last month to talk about the challenges that cities are still having with a good amount of people still working from home, you know, either full-time or part-time on a hybrid basis. And now you just had a headline come out this morning um, about Amazon canceling plans for their second headquarters in Virginia as a result of sort of those trends. So it's definitely like something that we're keeping an eye on. Chris, in terms of, um, you know, demand, what's it look like this year after the horrible, no good, very bad 2022? Um, and is there going to be enough supply to satisfy it? You know, I think that's a challenge, and that's why we're seeing ratios where they are. Demand um, is still relatively strong. Fund flows and the ETFs have, as a barometer for that are kind of flattish um, versus last year. There was a pretty pretty decent uh, liquidations from those types of uh, funds, which are a good way to look at the market in terms of demand. And so, you know, flattish demand versus really light supply down 30% so far year over year in 2022. Um, and, and that's not a good dynamic to be able to, to have from a supply standpoint. So let's even say steady demand versus much lighter supply. There's plenty of demand to eat it up, and that's why ratios are so so low. And you know, um, one of the interesting things as a result of that is seeing is the the tre- treasury curve we know is inverted, but for the first time in forever, for those that are uh, Disney fans, um, <laughs> the municipal yield curve inverted, and that's that's oh. never happened. Before. Yes, so that is a unique dynamic that has not happened before, and that just indicates the strong demand on the front end of the muni curve for paper. For the first time in forever, (laughs) look at that music. They'll be fun. (laughs) Boy, you get it all here. And who's got the two-year-old in this studio? (laughs) I guess we can tell. Hey, Eric, what little I know about the taxable municipal bond market, I've learned from you and your research. What's the outlook for taxable muni market uh, this year? I mean, pretty dismal from a supply standpoint. As you can imagine, we had so much volume you know, in the beginning you know, stages of the pandemic, just because rates were so much lower. And a lot of the activity that came in taxable immunity space was refunding of um, tax exempt bonds, really, that, you know, they were trying to take economic advantage of. That trade has totally gone away and supply has gone with it. You know, you're looking at down almost like 70 percent year over year basis for supply. And again, you know, you're talking taxable immunity rates tied to treasury rates. It's attractive from a buying standpoint, but the challenge is finding those bonds to buy. Why is there... S- 30% decline, Chris, in supply here. Is it just because interest rates have risen? Because I've uh, I've been told that true they don't really care about rates. Exactly. They, they issue money. They issue bonds when they need the money. We need to get Joe Mysek in here because he's been telling us this for years. <laughs> so, uh, so, yeah, I thought, like, they don't even care what the rate is. Whenever they need the money, um, they issue the bonds. It's not like what Paul used to tell his clients, you know, get the money when you can, not right. when you need it. Munis, you know, towns and cities, they're dumb. They don't do that. They do and they don't. I think, uh, you know, you're looking at the way that um, when there's a really big shock, you know, the, the, the markets in general and look at issuers as well, they don't like indecision. They don't like volatility. And so they just step back and say they can push, the, you know, kick the can down the road a little bit and they don't need to borrow today with a higher interest rate. And they, they're hopeful that things can improve for them and they can uh, borrow it better rates down the road, they might be willing to do that. And that in, in the face of a challenging environment with a lot of volatility just scares them. And so just think of them not wanting to step into it when there's volatility is one way I tend to look at it. Hey, uh, 
Eric, credit quality here. We've, I guess, yeah. since in the last several years, we've had no credit quality issues out there. Generally speaking, I mean, there's been so much liquidity from the federal government out there in the marketplace. Yeah. Is that still the case here? I mean, do you even run recession models for some of these issuers? Oh, we have tons of models, Paul. We're running them all the time. <laughs> now, <laughs> I mean, they, look, these cities, states, counties, they've had a ton of cash um, the first year and a half, two years of the pandemic, but they've, they've sort of worked their way through that. And to sort of add on to what Chris said, you know, some of this lack of supply has been them having these stockpiles of cash. They haven't really needed to access the market in times of higher rates. That's sort of running out now, right? They're on the clock. And we might actually see them being forced to issue into a higher rate environment when they don't really want to, which would be, you know, obviously like a painful situation mm. because it's just going to translate into, you know, higher taxes that trickle through. Um, you know, we're not predicting anything from a default standpoint, but there always is the, you know, the threat of spread widening as credit yep. softens through the rest of the year. Well, we even saw Illinois get upgraded a few weeks ago, so who knows what's going on out there. All right. That oh, was fun. A right. municipal bond roundtable. That is absolutely it was Max, good. I mean, Matt's been calling for that for the longest time, folks. We finally got it together. Eric Kazaski, senior municipal strategist out of Princeton. In, in, uh, and by the way, Chris, where are you? Uh, Wayne, New Jersey. Beautiful Wayne. Beautiful. So I wanted to ask if you do you want to go to Brooklyn Bowl tonight and see a dead cover band? <laughs> <laughs> I would if it wasn't for the commute. There you go. Uh, Chris Brigatti, Managing Director, Senior VP of Municipal Investments uh, at Valley National Bank, talking all things munis there. How fun is that? Paul and I have a guest in studio who runs what I think is one of the most fascinating businesses that we've uh, talked about in a long time. Ali Ben Elmadani joins us. He is the CEO of uh, ABL Aviation, and this is a company that uh, buys planes for airlines. I mean, big planes, um, not you know little private jets, and then leases them back. So he has a bird's eye view of the airline industry and the the crunch we're experiencing now um, in terms of capacity, uh, which results, of course, in higher prices. How is that going to go in the coming months and years? Ali, thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure having you in the in the studio. Um, what do you? How do you view the aviation industry right now? We've been talking about the 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 bounce back in travel across hotels, cruises, and airlines. We've seen uh, planes packed to full capacity here in the U.S. And now we have Europe not doing as badly as we thought it would. Plus, China reopening. What does that mean for you? Thank you, thank you very much, Matthew and Paul, for having me. Well, there's a big shortage of supply of aircrafts, and you see that all the flights that are going now in Europe and Americas are all full. Uh, the demand is very high, everybody is traveling, and that's without Asia being fully opened. So just with America and Europe, there's a big demand for flying, and you see it in the price of tickets going higher, and all the flights being fully uh, booked. You don't have enough supply of aircraft to all the airlines, so there's shortage and the slowdown of supply of aircraft. Why not enough supply? Is it because the airlines stopped putting in orders over COVID? Is it because they parked aircraft that they haven't been able to get back yet? Is it? Uh, is there some other reason? Why is there a shortage on the supply side? Because I'm sure Boeing and Airbus are willing to make as many as they can. Well, Boeing and Airbus are producing as fast as they can, but they're not producing enough. There's delay on both Boeing and Airbus, which they're trying to catch up They've had on. supply chain problems just exactly. like the car makers. Yes. So they had a big supply chain during COVID uh, issues, and they're fixing it, but there's a delay on that. In addition to that, the demand is so high. We didn't expect that the demand would be so high after COVID, and that's without even Asia being open, that there's wow. so much demand of people flying all over the world that didn't fly for two years or three years are all flying again. 
and I can, I'm sure like people like you are going on vacation like before uh, going on much more flying around the country and if you fly like a Vegas, New York all the flights are full yep. and there's a big demand for it when do you get it when do you believe that would we'll have that supply and demand will come back into balance a little bit more when do you think that will occur well, it will not happen, in my personal view, for the next 24 months because okay. Asia is not open yet. So yeah. even with just America and Europe being at full speed, we see that there is a huge demand. When the moment, if we assume that maybe America and Europe is going to slow down a little bit, then you have all of the demand from Asia that is going to happen, and this will keep on going. Wow. So this kind of goes to Airbus and Boeing. Um, that's the production side. We were talking about earlier all the stories at the beginning of the pandemic – Airlines taking their planes and parking them in the desert in Arizona or wherever. By the way, which airlines do you supply at ABL? We have a few airlines in the U.S. We have American Airlines. We have uh, Delta. We have Alaska, as we supply in Europe. We have Lufthansa, KLM, Air France, El Al in Israel. So different airlines that we provide. As an aside, I'll tell you that for years, Paul thought that the picture of the man on the tail of an Alaska airliner was Jerry Garcia from The Grateful (laughs) Dead. And then he realized eventually that it was uh, an Eskimo. Yes. Well into my adulthood, I thought that. <laughs> it's um, an amazing airline. Like it Alaska is. is an a, it airline. is amazing. All right. I park a plane in the, the, the desert. Why can't I just, if demand picks up, just go start it up again and put it back? Which into they the- all did, right? A lot of your customers during COVID said, listen, uh, you know, we're leasing planes from you. We're going to park them in Arizona for a while. Some of them did park it, but you need to make that aircraft airworthy again. So like, to make it airworthy, it takes time. You have to have a uh, check in uh, what we call an MAO facility, so maintenance uh, repair overhaul facility. But there's no spots. Like There's a shortage of spots in all those MAO. There's a delay. Everybody is going back to those MAO to have those aircraft airworthy or to have those ah. checks. And there's not enough space for all those aircrafts. So what? you have – I mean, you're basically sitting pretty right now. In terms yeah. of your business, uh, you're a happy man. Not – well, yes. If you have <laughs> naked aircraft, you can uh, lease them at a high price today. But you have to remember that there's a case of interstate that's happened in the last few months that will have an impact on the lease rates and the cost of financing that right, is okay. not being – implemented yet so the lease rates of all those leases that have been leased to airlines is not seen yet so you have to adjust for this new interest environment for this new cost of financing and that's just happening now so it's just starting so i'll be a happy man in 12 months (laughs) (laughs) how do you anticipate how does the industry anticipate the reopening of china to impact kind of just the global aviation market and over what time frame well, the moment that we are going to have a full opening of Asia, not only China, but Asia, yes, right. you are going to see all those people, like what's happening in America, what's happening in Europe. The first thing you did when COVID right. was away is that I want to go on a flight to Paris. I want to go to see Venice. I want to see what I couldn't see anymore because COVID is gone. You are going to have the same thing from Asian uh, people that are going to say, I want to see New York. I want to see Vegas. I, like, yep. there's no more. We can finally go back to Tokyo, for example. Exactly. So then you are going to have big demand. And that demand, you need to supply aircrafts for that. You need to supply good routes for that, and there will be a huge demand for it. In, in terms of what are the other things that, that you care about? I mean, fuel prices, they haven't gone up um, substantially yet. I've been watching at least you know, Brent crude, and it hasn't been boosted so much by the reopening in China yet. Well, it happens, but you have to remember that the cost of most airlines, one-third of the cost is fuel. And some of them did hedge, some of them didn't hedge. But as long as the fuel stays where it is, we have enough demand to make sure that airlines are in very good health. So airlines are very, very happy today. If you look at the ticket mm-hmm. prices versus before COVID, it's almost three times what it used to be. So th- that's due to the demand and supply issue. What's the biggest challenge right now for your business? 
the costs of financing, the cost of debt, because of anti-SA is going, and the inflation is going to be one of the big issues. Are, are you a debt. big borrower? Are you have a lot of debt to f- finance your aircraft? Well, before anti-SA's in case, we used to borrow lots of money to finance our aircrafts. Right now, in the last 12 months, with the anti-SA's in case, we're doing most of our aircrafts at 100% equity and with the idea to back leverage it uh, later on. Wow. Where do you get the equity? Well, one of our biggest partners is a Japanese uh, big house in Japan. That okay. uh, is our one of our equity partners, and we have two uh, partners here in the U.S. Interesting. Okay. It is a fascinating business, I have to say, uh, and we could spend like an hour talking <laughs> with you about this. So I hope you come back or in the studio next Marrakech. time. Uh, or we could go so, – so, so Ali has just moved to Marrakesh. We can share that. And yeah. Paul is like on eBookers right now yes. booking his next flight. Uh, I, I honestly really want to go there. And you can go there from Spain. My brother just went there. I think it would be a great place to take a motorcycle trip. Like, yeah. I want to go there, get a BMW, like a GS1250, and just ride around Morocco. <laughs> would love to have you there. I would love to have you in Marrakesh. <laughs> that would be great. I'll call when I get there. Exactly. Ali Ben – Lamdadi, CEO of ABL Aviation. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.